Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. I have a very special guest today, Rob Fitzpatrick, author of The Mom Test, a book that is very deceivingly small, but very large in the implications that it has for your company. Now, as you all know, we'd love to get started by getting to know the person behind the, the legend. And uh, Rob, Rob is a Georgia Tech graduate, and so it's maybe a good place to start. What did you do right after college? Well, during college, I, I found that the career I wanted, which was video game development, was not a good career path, right? It's very spiky. You don't get a lot of control over your outcomes. And uh, I was feeling a little bit burned out on the idea of the corporate world as well. And, and so I thought academia would be the, you know, the perfect solution. No bureaucracy was what I believed and a pure battleground of the minds, you know, just your idea versus the other guys. So one year into grad school, I realized I'd made a huge mistake, and at about that time, I heard about startups. And that seemed like what I had actually been looking for. You know, if you do a good job, you're rewarded, and if not, you find out pretty quickly. And we didn't know anything about business, but I heard about Y Combinator. Obviously, that was like 2007, and so that's where the Googling led me. And we applied, and I don't think we would have had kind of the conviction to drop out of grad school and school and quit jobs. There were four of us on that team. Uh, without some sort of like seal of approval. Um, I don't think you need it necessarily, but at the time we, we, we needed to see it. And we flew out for the interview and we were all excited and we, we'd made sort of our idea was to do a crazy video game company. And we showed it to uh, Paul Graham and he said, well, this is a terrible idea and it'll never work and it'll never scale. We're, we're sort of like, it's a 10 minute interview, we're three minutes in. And we're like heartbroken. We're like, why did you fly us to California? And he goes, well, I really like your team. And if you can come up with an idea that doesn't suck, in the next seven minutes, we'll fund it. And I said, oh, wow, will you help? And he goes, all right. And so we had a seven-minute idea jam. At the end of it, he's like, I'm in. And that's what uh, threw us into the startup world. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool story. So then what was that idea? Uh, we just kind of... we. <laughs> We didn't want to completely throw away the game, so we just tried to tweak them to make them sound more scalable. So the idea was that instead of making the games, we would make a game builder. You know, loads of people have tried this, very difficult. Uh, and, and thankfully, we decided a first step there is like animations are basically games without the interactivity. So we thought an animation builder would be a good step toward a game builder, and it would be an okay standalone product as well. And that dragged us into the world of interactive and social advertising which was a terrible fit for our team, but it's what we were able to raise funding and get started on. Okay, so what was that like then? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the product is sort of a non-issue now. It's time has passed. At the time, Facebook platform and Twitter were both quite new and yeah. brands were very desperate to figure out how to use it yeah. and also terrified. And so we kind of came in and we had a really strong like curation angle. So it was social media, but only the good parts. Yeah. And then you could pump it through display ads. I feel slightly nauseous even thinking about it because it was such a cynical idea. None of us cared about advertising. None of yeah. us cared at all. But it looked good on a spreadsheet. You could kind of run the numbers and you go, oh, that's a lot of millions of dollars. Yeah. We never saw any of them. But it was enough to convince us and to convince some investors. And my biggest learning from that was just like really getting hit in the face with founder business, like founder business fit or misfit. Yeah. And it was an enterprise sales driven business. And that ended up falling on me. And I had no sales experience. I was a video game designer. And so, but, you know, I had to buy the suit and get the cufflinks and go hit the pavement. And it was the worst two years of my life. Um, but it was, in retrospect, brilliant because, like, talking to customers is a pretty useful thing. And yeah. I was glad to be forced through that. And what was the, in the, in the mom test, and we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later, there's clearly a lot of lessons learned from 
not just that experience, but from others' experiences in your life. But in that specific two years, what was like maybe the key lessons that you can now attribute to having learned? <laughs> the biggest one was what the idea of a good meeting and a bad meeting are. So I thought if the customer was excited and we'd become friends, that it was a good meeting. Yeah. You know, we leave, everyone's like, yeah, it's the future, we love it, you're great. And I'm like, yeah, and I'd go back to the team and everyone's excited. And those never converted into sales. So I was like, man, like I really love it. And I'd call them up and I'd be like, hey, how's it going? You know, like, want to show you the latest on the product. And they'd get excited again and they still wouldn't buy it. And I realized that actually what you want to do is, uh, or at least the, the tack I take now, is at the end of every meeting, I try to set myself up for rejection by asking for some sort of commitment. So I asked for some of their time, some of their reputation through an introduction or a testimonial or a case study. Once the product's a bit further, you ask for some of their, their money, uh, like a deposit, letter of intent, pre-order. And so just by asking for something small at the end of a meeting, people go from like, yeah, I love it, to ooh, I'm actually not sure it's for us. And that helped me figure out which were actually my good meetings, good in that they're moving toward that person becoming a customer. Mm. Suddenly I was like, wow, I've wasted so much time. And that was a real turning point for spending my time better. And did you have any of the ones that you thought had gone poorly previously turn out to actually be ones that converted? Yeah, certainly. I mean, someone's like, they're stern and they're like, they're pushing on you and they're calling, you know, BS on the product and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, that guy hates me. It's like, he was so harsh. And then they'd call back up and they were actually the one that was serious and doing proper due diligence. Mm. You know, they'd call up a week later and they go, okay, we're ready. I was like, what? It was like, that was the one that scratched out of my pipeline. Mm. So I've, yeah, I've totally reconfigured my, my thinking about what makes a, a, a good meeting. So that was two years, pounding the pavement, and kind of maybe getting your first um, foray into the, the idea that maybe you don't need to, to be friends with those people that you're trying to, to sell to, but rather showcasing the value you can provide, but then getting a commitment. So, yes. And that's a very big theme that you go, you go through in the, in the book. But what happened afterwards? What happened after the two years? So that company, we'd spent probably the first, let's say, year and a half, uh, kind of obsessed about the product and then realizing that we hadn't quite built the right thing, even though we had a couple early early customers. And how did you realize that it wasn't the right thing? I mean, <laughs> other than the, the, the founder product fit that you mentioned earlier. I mean, it was just simply starting to run out of money. And then, you know, like the rigor of trying to go out and fundraise again, when people start pressing on the pipeline and they go, well, how likely are they to convert? And you go, actually, I really don't know. Mm. And you look at it and that's where we realized a lot of what we had hoped would fall through was actually a we'd been lying to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was kind of the fundraising process, like really shook up our product vision. We're like, oh, we need to change things. Um, and then we did, a, you know, probably another year and a half of like very uh, customer focused, tons of conversations, tons of interviews. And ultimately we failed anyway. Uh, three years in with some of the best investors and best support and mentors in the world. And like we had to keep the company in zombie mode for another year because we just signed a one-year contract with MTV. Mm -hmm. It was cruel irony where we'd been working on this deal for months and it finally came through and we're like, yes, one-year contract. And then the next day we're like, oh, we need to shut down the company. Mm. And it meant that we had this client to support. We had a few, but that was the, the longest. Mm. And, and so we helped all the team transition off and I basically just run, ran it as a skeleton company for another year. And, and that's where I really had time to think through and be like, what went wrong there? Why did we still screw it up? And I realized, you know, it was, I was just, I thought I was learning from my customers, but I was actually just getting compliments, getting opinions. I wasn't getting any real data. So all of those, that two years of painful sales was kind of wasted time. Yeah. So the compliments, let's, let's um, talk a little bit about that because I know that one of the things that you talk about in your book is 
the the challenges associated with soliciting feedback that is actually uh, creating more problems in terms of uh, confirmation bias. Yeah, people always go like a, a common startup idea is travel planning apps, and it, it's it's a really interesting one, and someone will do it brilliantly, of course, and there's an amazing business to be built there, but. It's a really common trap because everyone has the problem, but it's not really an important problem. So you can talk to someone and you go, hey, isn't travel annoying, like planning a trip? And they're like, yeah, it's so annoying. And you, you talk them through and they get really emotional and agitated. And they're like, yeah, someone should definitely do something about that. And you're like, yeah. And you're like, all right, I'm doing it. This is the app. It has these features. And they're like, oh, I love it. That would make my life so much easier. And you feel like you've really validated it, right? You had a customer conversation, they got emotional, they said it's a problem, they liked their, your solution. And then you launch and nobody uses it. And, and you're like, whoa, what's going on here? And what happened is you just missed one question, which is, well, you planned a trip recently. And they go, yeah, I went on a trip four weeks ago. And you go, well, talk me through how you did that. And they go, oh, you know, I asked friends, I Googled around, looked at some blog posts. And really, I didn't schedule that much. I just kind of, uh, you know, when I go there, I'll ask the hotel guy and he'll recommend some places. You go, oh, did you look for apps? They go, no, why would I look for an app? I'm like, well, isn't it annoying? And they're like, yeah, but you deal with it. In the first version, we were talking about our product and it gets them all excited and they compliment it. And even yeah. if they criticize it, that's still just an opinion. That's not real data. Right. Whereas in the second case, we asked about their life. We go like, well, talk me through how you planned a trip. What did you do about it? How do you solve it already? If they'd been like, man, yeah, I searched the app store for hours. I tried 10 different apps. They're all terrible. That's a customer, right? Yeah. If they go, why would I search for one? Then they're not. And so by asking about them, you can get much purer information that's a fact about their life rather than an opinion about what they think they would do. Yeah. No, fair, fair point. And so the, the zombie mode ends. Yeah. But then what? What happened in your life? Yeah, I'm, I'm liberated. And that was actually a funny period because uh, I'd run out of money, obviously, because I'd done really poor uh, personal financial management and I hadn't protected my downside. So I'd sunk all of my savings. I hadn't wanted to admit to the team and the investors that we'd failed. So I kept pouring my savings month after month to cover payroll. Um, don't do this, obviously. Like It was just like I didn't have the, I guess, perspective to realize like it's startups. They're high risk. Sometimes they don't work out. So I thought it was the whole universe. And I was like, ah... And so I was dead broke. And at about that point, I went back to my apartment and this is when the year of zombie mode is starting. I went back to my apartment and all of my furniture is on the street and there's some couple in my apartment. And I go, and they go, who are you? And I'm like, who are you? And it turned out that they go, we moved in today. I'm like, mm. it turned out the uh, <laughs> estate agent had mixed up their dates by a month. And so they'd moved someone in a month before I was scheduled to move out. Wow. And uh, I call them, it's midnight, you know, and uh, they're like, oh my gosh, they realize they're in a bit of a predicament. And I go, it's okay. Give me my last month's rent back. Give me my deposit back, all of it. I'll be out by tomorrow. Pay for a hotel for this couple for tonight. I'll be out in the morning. They're like, thank you so much. So that gave me um, a bit of cash in my pocket. And I was walking down the streets of London. I was like, all right, so I've got this much money left to my name. And I need to figure out a place to live and a way to not have to get a job because I want to do entrepreneurship stuff. <laughs> At about that time, I was walking past a shady warehouse in uh, Shoreditch, and the rent and the deposit was plus or minus a couple hundred quid, exactly what I had in my pocket. I'm like, all right. I called uh, my longtime business partner, Devin. I go, Devin, I'm going to get this shady warehouse and turn it into some sort of co-working space. And he goes, he's like, awesome. Let me come look at it. He sees it. He goes, do not do this. You know, barely any windows. There's an oven upside down in the middle of the floor. And I'm just like, no, I see the vision for it. 
So I spent my uh, last bit of money and all I needed to do was rent eight desks before the next month's rent was due. And I was like, I can rent eight desks in a month. And, and the big challenge you have when you're doing co-working is obviously deal flow. And I thought this was a good business for me, right? Because I needed to be physically present, but I didn't need to spend time on it. So it gave me my year to sort of like, if I could pull it off, to run my company in zombie mode, to not have to get a job and have time to think through stuff, develop my network and skills and all that. And so I called every uh, startup event in London. And one of the great things about London, if you're you know, in my situation, is that the bars close early. So at midnight, everyone gets kicked out and they have no place to go. So I called every startup event organizer and I said, if you need an after party location for your event, like come to my warehouse. And it meant that every night of the week, there'd be 50 new potential like customers like coming through and they go, well, this place is weird. And I'm like, you want a desk? Uh, and so that's how I filled it up. I filled it up within about a week. <laughs> and uh, it was kind of a nightmare living there because I turned half of it into an apartment and the, it was kind of divided by an interior wall and the other half into the co-working space. Really did What's not. What's the name of it? It was called. Uh, it was named by uh, sort of whoever could do it first on Foursquare. So we called it Nevada Robs. Nevada Rocks. Nevada Robs, like oh. Nevada Bobs, the golf oh. store. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was fun. So I did that for a year. That was sort of my skeleton mode year. But I was really glad to get out of that and, and into a real flat. After that, you know, goofed around with a bunch of little ideas. Um, started doing some freelance work because you know it's like you need to cover your runway somehow. And yeah, just bounced around, tried different stuff. Yeah, and, and I, I guess to some extent, all these stories around the co-working space and bouncing around, doing stuff. I mean, there there are elements in the book that that you that must have come from that period. What what would you say, like, if you think back to those moments and and maybe the chapters you've written, what, where have they come from? Well, one interesting one for me was realizing how good it feels to kill a fledgling idea when you haven't yet committed heavily to it. And this can be a mistake as well. Like sometimes we're tempted to give up on every idea because it doesn't magically work from day, day zero. But during that year, I was just like, I tried a load of different stuff and I'd go, oh, I have an interesting idea for public speakers. And so I would go to events for public speakers or I would go to Toastmasters and try to talk to aspiring public speakers. And I wasn't really building businesses exactly. I was just exploring opportunities. And that's when I learned uh, one of my favorite tricks, which is just that you don't need a meeting to do a customer interview. And actually, if you run into someone on the street or at a, a meetup event or wherever, and you know what you're trying to learn, you go, hey, you're a public speaker. And they go, yeah. And you go, weird question, I know, but how do you get your speaking gigs? And they go, oh, well, it's a nightmare. I try this and I try this. I talked to one guy. He was literally signed up with every speaking agent in London. He had like 50 different agents. And he's like, yeah, I'm just desperate for more speaking gigs. You know, I do all this stuff. Um, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And so you get a feeling. Sometimes you try to explore an idea and you're just like, wow, that's a total dead end. And it feels great to realize that early. You're like, they don't care at all. There's no problem. There's no budget. There's nothing. And just be like, ah, oh, thank goodness I saved myself from that. I got a lot more comfortable walking away from doomed ideas, I guess, mm. and aggressively pursuing the knowledge of whether or not they're doomed. Mm. You don't want to find that out two years down the line. Yeah, fair enough. So yeah, killing ideas quickly. But did you end up taking any of the of the uh, speaking gigs from those guys? <laughs> so we uh, that was a silly little idea. It was good in that it generated some quick revenue. I think we did two thousand pounds of revenue the day we had the idea. But we couldn't really grow it. We hit like, so it was a problem, but it was very niche and it was like nothing you could build a business on. Uh, so yeah, we helped them get some speaking gigs. And, and that was an example, simple idea. It was a marketplace to connect uh, conferences with public speakers. Mm. And we had the idea kind of that uh, over time there might be like 
comedians or party clowns or like any of these kind of like one-time performance jobs uh, where testimonials matter and it's like anyway uh, and so we we didn't want to build a whole marketplace because it's hard to get things up to scale so mm-hmm. we just emailed a bunch of conferences and we said hey if you pay us you know 20 quid per introduction we'll basically be an introduction agency for you tell us what kind of speakers you need and we'll go find them and we found 100 speakers on Twitter and on SlideShare and stuff. And we sent them all a message and we said, hey, do you want more speaking gigs? Would it be spammy if we like sent you speaking invitations? Mm. And almost across the board, they said, no, that'd be amazing. I said, all right, great, fill out this form so we know who you are. And then we just started pairing them up and we did 52 introductions the first day. So a thousand pounds revenue, not 2000. But we're like, all right, that's day one. And then it was like from there, try to grow the thing, which turned out to be difficult. <laughs> and so, you know, you've, you, you went from startup to then, you know, co-working space CEO to <laughs> then matchmaker, speaking matchmaker. What came after that? Uh, so one of the ways I think about businesses, and it's kind of one of the big meta mistakes, I guess, that we made with the first company was that we, we thought of startups as like one unit, like it's a startup, right? And we're like, well, startups. And so you Google about them and the loudest voice are the investors or like the billion dollar companies. It's like you look up to these superhero founders and you're like, yeah, I want to be like that. And so that's kind of what we emulated, right? We went the hyper growth route. We raised the funding. It's like big, bold ideas that probably aren't going to work, but could be huge. Mm. And, and over time, my development as a, as a founder was to realize that my values are actually like working with friends and having a pretty easy day to day and like not having to compromise too much on like what I'm doing for who. Um, And so over time I've been moving a lot more toward like you could build a company for scale, you could build a company for freedom or you can build a company for like a reliable way to pay the bills. Yeah. And I'm sort of the, the warehouse in that year of goofing around that was kind of extremely like reacting to trying to do scale and instead going for complete freedom. Yeah. It's like no job, no commitments, no hours, no office, no team, just working by myself. And, and, and then after that, I was like, but also having money is fun, you know, in like a real apartment. So that moved me a bit more toward the reliability direction. So for the last three years, I didn't think it would run for three years, but I've been doing a little kind of agency that designs education. So we work with universities, governments, and help them design like education curriculums and train their trainers and do that sort of stuff. It's been really fun. And I was actually blown away by the depth and the interestingness of the challenges of yeah. what I thought at first would be just a silly you know, little business. But now that I guess the basic finances are sorted, I've gone kind of full circle and because, you know, that business is fine and stable. I've gone full circle and I'm now back to scale. So I found I've naturally gotten ambitious again. And I'm like, now my notebooks where they were full of like sales leads, now they're full of product ideas again. It's actually really fun. I started coding again. I'm like, you know, back in it. It's really satisfying. Yeah. And so now let's fast forward to sort of the genesis of the book and and let's, let's kind of dive deeper into some of the, the key elements of it. Um, when did you start writing it? Ooh, uh, probably two, two and a half years ago. Two and a half years ago? It um, was during a uh, New Year's holiday. I was at uh, some startup guy. Uh, he's also named Rob. His Twitter handle is Startup Rob. And we were out and we were drinking and having a grand time. And he made one of these like drunken invitations he's like oh i'm going to uh, bavaria with my uh, my wife we're staying with her family you should come with us and i was like yeah you know for new year's we're going for a week and i was like yeah and i never expected that to go anywhere but uh then the next day he's like here are the details and i was like 
well, all right, I'm going. So I spent this, uh, this week with them in Bavaria and I just had nothing to do. Uh, you know, I was in this little cabin off the side of their house. They put me up really well, but I had this cabin and I was like, and that's actually brilliant. It's like a week long plane trip where you just can't distract yourself with the internet. I brought no computer. She's like, what do I do? I was going a bit stir crazy. So it's like, that's where I wrote the whole first draft of the book in, in that week. Paper and pencil. Paper and pencil. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. And so when, when, what, what stories were you thinking about when you first were like in, in that week and you were writing stuff down, what were the key things you're like, okay, these are the things that man, and like I totally had it wrong. And, and then I learned these things and now I'm going to make this because you know, you, you were an inspiration in helping me come up with the book, the fundraising field guide. And you know, the, the ideas that I had were around some of the common pitfalls and the, the key ones were like around relationships and then deal structuring and come up with these things. And, and some of that stuff came up quite quickly. I mean, it was just how to, how to make it flow. And so if I, if I assume that you went through a similar process, you might not have, um, what was that week's content really about? What was that n- the nugget really that, that you sort of distilled in that week? You know, there's, a, I think for a lot of kind of, I guess my, I don't know if generation is the right word, but like my group of startup founders. So when Lean Startup was becoming a big thing, when customer development was like starting, we all saw it as the magic bullet. We're like, oh, brilliant. You can build companies scientifically. You can de-risk them. It's like you can control all this stuff. And we took it on as a religion. And it's like very like framework driven, very like we must be rigorous. We must test everything. We must interview a zillion customers. And a few years later, you got like a big group of founders who had done all of that to the letter and failed anyway. And that was certainly my experience. And we, we all felt a bit jilted. We're like, you know, we followed this process. We did so much work and it didn't work for us. And so the big insight was like talking to customers is not as easy as talking to customers. You can do it right and you can do it wrong. And over the couple of years of like messing it up and gradually starting to see what worked and then hanging out with a lot of other founders, I was like, actually, I see what makes the difference. Uh, and, and the big ones is you ask about their life, not your idea. So you get facts about their life instead of opinions about your, your product. And if you are going to show them your product, you make sure you ask for a commitment at the end of it to figure out whether they're serious or whether they're just being excited and nice. Mm-hmm. And those were the two core insights. So those are the two core insights. And then basically you went to detail in the book about those core insights. Yeah. And little stories like the example I use in the, um, the book. And the reason it's called the mom test is because people say that you shouldn't ask your mom if your business is a good idea because like your mom loves you and she like supports everything you do. And she's like, yeah, it's amazing. You're great. Um, And if you go to your mom, even if she's a customer and you're like, Hey, I'm making a cookbook app. Uh, It's got the recipes and the videos and all this cool stuff. What do you think? She's going to go, I love it. I would definitely use it. Right. You just pitched your product. So you got a compliment. Whereas if you go into the same conversation and you go, Hey mom, When's the last time you bought a cookbook? She'll go like, I've never, I haven't bought a cookbook for 10 years. Like I know how to cook. And you're like, oh, this is like the person I thought was my customer doesn't have the, you know, they don't have the problem. They don't have the buying behavior. What am I going to do? And as you keep talking, you know, you might be like, well, when's the last time you did get a new one? And she's like, actually, you know, three months ago, I got a vegetarian cookbook. And you go, okay, that's interesting. Niche recipes, not mainstream ones. So by just leaving your product out of it and talking about, the customer's life. It's like, that's where you get all this learning. And then you take your own visionary leap as an entrepreneur and like, well, what's the product I could build that would fit into this customer's life as I now understand it. Um, it wasn't one huge story. It's just, you, you see this repeated everywhere. And what's your, what's your view of, of some of the sort of alternative philosophies around product development? The, the sort of Henry Ford, like if I ask people 
and you know this, would, this is what they would give me. Now, mind you, of course, like the statement you just made isn't one that excludes you as a founder coming up with something once you know all the information about your customer. But maybe for those that are a bit skeptic about the the merits of of doing both things and still coming up with something as innovative as an iPhone, mm. what what would you say to them? So like, you know, like Steve Jobs and he talks about how like he never does focus groups. And I think that's a good idea, really, because you don't learn much from a focus group because you, you, you get group think. There's a lot of biases. You're getting people's opinions. I'm sure it works for some types of companies. But like just because you don't do a focus group doesn't mean you don't understand your customers. And you can bet that the iPhone came out of like a really deep understanding of, you know, how people use their iPods and how they relate to handheld devices and like their frustrations with other phones. So... Whether you get your insight through interviews or through observation or through kind of scratching your own itch and being your own, it, it doesn't matter. It's just like you need some sort of foundation of insight about the people who are going to be using and paying for your product. Nowadays, it's like interviews are one of many tools that I use. Um, the mom test happens to be about interviews because that's what I was screwing up and that's what I saw other people screwing up. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I mean, if you can just watch what people do on your website or you can just put them to a purchase decision, run a Kickstarter, it's like brilliant, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you don't need to uh, go through a process just because it's there. Mm-hmm. And what are the other sort of digital channels that people tend to screw up quite easily? Like I, I know that I've seen a lot of people screw up uh, surveys mm-hmm. and ask leading questions and stuff like that. What, what's your sort of rule of thumb in, in, in constructing those kinds of... I mean, personally, I've never gotten value out of a survey, so I just don't do them uh, anymore. Because Why is that? I sort of feel like most surveys, if you could get it from a survey, you could probably get it from Google because you're polling a large number of people to get sort of like aggregate responses. It's hard. I saw quite a good one uh, the other day. Someone emailed me to, to check over their survey and it was all questions like they were, it was only th- about three or four questions. They were all long form. I mean, we'll see what the response rates are on something like that. But they were, they were kind of like, how are you currently dealing with this? Like, why do you do it that way? What else have you tried? The exact sort of questions that I think make sense to ask in an interview. I don't know if it translates, but, you know, it's certainly worth a try. They were out in um, Asia and they were building for a Western audience. So they couldn't actually do face-to-face conversations. So they, they were sort of like a bit hamstrung. But, but the elements still apply, which is finding out more information about your customer and then you're taking the, the cognitive leap of putting it all together and taking a bet on, on that leap rather than sort of conf- getting confer- confirmation via a survey of your leap because they'll just confirm it without really understanding it. Yeah, it's sort of like validation theater. It's like proving that you're like trying to appear rigorous by like doing something, but actually it's like, is that data really meaningful? Mm. You can sort of imagine, you can think through, you look at your survey and you go, what could they say that would make me fundamentally reimagine this business? What could they say that would convince a skeptical investor that we're correct? It's like, is that gonna come from a survey? Probably not. Mm-hmm. If the data you're getting isn't valuable, then like why go through the motions? Not to say that like, you can't figure out some way to make it work, I would just say like, yeah, it, it, is the, the candle worth the flame? Is it worth going through the effort to get the kind of data you're going to get? Yeah. Um, something else also incidentally, 
one of the famous like case studies at the landing page MVP, the landing page experiment, was uh, Joel Gasconi from Buffer. And they put up a simple page in a couple hours because um, he'd just been burned. What people don't know is he'd spent two years getting absolutely nowhere with his previous startup yeah. called OnePage, which was trying to replace the business card. And so he didn't want to make the same mistake. So he's like, we have to test it. Put up this landing page, said, this is how much it costs. You know, These are the features. Click here to buy it. And then he said, sorry, we're not ready yet. And people have uh, emulated this. You know, you've got whole products that all they do is they put up landing pages for you. But talking to Joel, he said he actually learned nothing from the numbers. So he's like, yeah, so we got so much traffic and so many people clicked and so many people put in their email address. He said that isn't what convinced him to move forward. What he did is he emailed everyone who had dropped in their email address. And he said, hey, I'm really sorry to have like misled you. Um, and I, I hope you don't mind this email, but I'm, I'm really curious, like, what you were expecting when you clicked on that. Like, what were you looking for? What else have you tried? What were you hoping this product would be? And he said of those, it only led to about a dozen email conversations. And out of those, maybe two or three were really engaged and wanted to jump on Skype and talk further. But he was like, that's where I knew I had customers. And it was those conversations that, like, they gave him the nuance, right? So mm. the, the whole landing page was just a way to start talking to the right people. Mm. Uh, people now they go yeah what's our conversion rate going to be to move forward with this this product I'm skeptical of that mm. now that you've come around full circle to ambition mode mm -hmm. um, is there anything you'd like to share to the audience in terms of what you're working on ideas or anything like that or is it stealth <laughs> it's I mean it's not stealth but there's nothing much to see yet the core idea is uh, my last business, my education business we used lots and lots of slide decks mm -hmm. like everyday slide decks slide decks were like the core I guess, material that we worked in and that we mm. passed around and shared. There's a bunch of problems. And obviously there's tons of startups doing stuff. Um, and they're like these nice, sexy, web-based, all these apps. Uh, we're trying to be as boring and unsexy as possible and really target the just day-to-day -day, like professional who has to make slide deck after slide deck, sales proposals, market research reports, all that stuff. So it's like boring as a strategy. It's gonna be desktop software. Uh, so we're, we're doing all this stuff. We just want to compete directly with PowerPoint and Keynote. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll see. It's look, early. Yeah, look forward, <laughs> to, look, look forward to hearing more. And then for, for those, I mean, obviously, you, it's, it's been a great gift to the ecosystem to have your book um, available and, and have people being able to read it and rethink their assumptions around how to engage with customers. But um, how can people get in touch with you or or workshops that you hold so that for those of you that are listening and that want a, a little bit more Rob Fitzpatrick action, how can they get involved? Uh, the best place is just robfitz.com, R-O-B-F-I-T-Z.com. And that's my email as well, rob at robfitz.com. Uh, but that links off to everything. So that links off to, you know, videos talking about this stuff and the book site and everything else. Um, and if you're a starving entrepreneur and you, you can't afford the book, just send me an email and I'll, I'll send you over a PDF. Most people can afford a book, but, you know, if you can't, we'll make it happen. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well, with that, thanks for joining us, uh, Rob. And uh, until next time, guys. Bye.